Hello, friends. Just a couple quick notes before we start episode two of the membership. What you're about to hear is our discussion of three essays from Wendell Berry's 1969 collection, The Long-Legged House. John, Tim, and I had a lengthy conversation about these essays, so we decided to break it up into two separate episodes. What you'll be hearing today is episode 2A, and we'll finish our conversation next week with episode 2B. And while we're on the topic of episode numbers, you'll notice that in the episode proper, we refer to what we're doing as episode 1. After recording this and a few other episodes, we decided to rearrange the original order, so our apologies for the confusion. Thanks for bearing with us as we get the podcast off the ground and work out the kinks in our recording and editing processes. All right, without further ado, here is episode 2A of The Membership. friends, and welcome to episode one of The Membership, a podcast about the works and life of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is John Pattison, and I'm joined by my two fellow members. I'm Jason Hardy. And this is Tim Watson. How's it going, guys? Good. Going well. Episode one. This is exciting. Episode one. <laughs> yep. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Episode sort of one. <laughs> I'd say that this is uh, that this is new and exciting, except for it's it's it is very exciting, but mm-hmm. it's not actually new. This is by no stretch the first episode that we've recorded. We've recorded no. at least one episode that will hopefully never be heard uh, <laughs> by the public. Well, not only that, I think we're all excited. The three of us are excited to record an episode that our listeners have probably already heard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because uh, episode zero will be recorded. Gosh, or it was recorded. It was quite, recorded yeah, it in was a month re- from now. <laughs> it was. It was. Will be recorded. It will be. Yeah. It's a very will thing have to say. been. It was and yeah. will be recorded yeah, yeah, in exactly. two months from now. That's a very we're, we're entering yes. into the timeless. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to assume that that our live recording of episode zero at the Hutchmoot conference in Nashville in October went great. Yep. We hope that you loved listening to it as much as we will love recording it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks. Again, and in advance to the rabbit room for letting us do that. (laughs) So we're going to be talking today in episode one about three essays in Wendell Berry's first essay collection, The Long-Legged House. And this was uh, this collection was first published in 1969. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the three essays at the very end of that book. It's in section three of that collection. And those essays are The Rise, The Long-Legged House, and A Native Hill. And in these essays, Wendell Berry talks about where he's writing from, why he is writing about some of the things that he's writing about. Wendell Berry is a placed writer. And it's in these three essays that he really describes his place and how in his late 20s and early 30s, he sort of finally becoming native to the place where he was born. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with uh, these three essays, uh, The Rise, uh, Long-Legged House, and Native Hill. And we'll just jump right into it with The Rise. The Rise describes a canoe trip that Barry took with an unnamed companion on a cold, gray 
mid-December day, and Barry lives on the Kentucky River, and Barry and his companion put their canoe in the water six miles upstream from uh, Barry's house. And in this essay, Barry recounts the journey itself, what he sees and, and hears and what they do, as well as the thoughts and the feelings that the journey is is stirring up in him, both about the, the non-human life along the river, the, the plants and birds and, and animals, uh, but also the human life along the river as well. And the river is up uh, 20 feet, and that's the rise of the title, The River's in Flood. And so Wendell Berry talks about being excited by um, the unexpected changes that it makes. He says that, quote, "'What's difficult becomes easy. What was easy becomes difficult.'" By water, what was distant becomes near. By land, what was near becomes distant. And he writes later about the strange excitement in going in a boat where one would ordinarily go on foot or where ordinarily birds would fly. Um, there, there's the, the Wendelberry contrasts. It's like signature yes, contrasts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. for sure. Uh, he reflects on the power of, of nature as seen in the river at flood which also leads him to reflect on life. And one of the passages that I liked talked about how they would they pushed the canoe out into the water and they started settling in in preparation for their journey, even as their starting place is already diminishing behind them. And he says, there's something ominously like life in that. One would always like to settle oneself, get braced, say, now I'm going to begin and then begin. But as the necessary quiet seems about to descend, a hand is felt at one's back, shoving. That is the way with the river when a current is running. Once the connection with the shore is broken, the journey has begun. But I think that it's really appropriate uh, to read this essay right at the very beginning of our project. And I'm wondering if you guys feel the same way and, and what some of those reasons might be. Why do you think this is a good place to start? Well, I think these essays have a feel, have more of a, like a memoir feel than we typically get from him in the future. Mm-hmm. Or I guess what we call it like, mm-hmm. from the, the essays and I mean, obviously the fiction, but, and even in his poetry, you, it's not, it doesn't feel as much like, let me tell you a story about this moment in my life that was super impactful. There are moments of that, of course, but I guess just as far as the density of it, where it seems like a nice place to start with the rise being a, a model of how he experiences his place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, later in a native hill, he talks about how it would take more than a lifetime to discover all the mysteries of the place where he is. Um, and this is like one of those moments of discovering that mystery, right? Where he's seeing something and understanding the world a little better, not by going and hunting it out and searching all over the world, but by staying firmly planted in his place and seeing things clearly. And I think that's that makes makes it a really appropriate place to start. It's very personal to him. It's early in the story, of course, which can't deny that. And then it's just him almost discovering for himself why his place is so important to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right, Tim. I, mean, I think it's a really, it's a particular moment in his place. And I, I feel like that's really appropriate due to what he ends up talking about in the other two essays of having to learn how to observe and to see his place and to see his place within his place before he even gets into the narrative of how he developed uh, that ability to experience um, experience nature around him, we just have this vignette of him doing that that we can always refer back to as we're uh, reading the other two essays. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like 
it takes the things we'll read in the future kind of out of abstraction for mm-hmm. what they mean to him that we have something. Yeah. That's, I like that, that we always, always have something that we can point back to. It's like he experienced in the canoe or it's like he experienced on the, on the hill or coming back from New York city or all those things. This, this reading this made me wonder if there is an anthology of canoe literature. <laughs> and I actually went, Nick Offerman, I went on Amazon. If there was, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, and I di- didn't find it. I didn't look really hard, but nothing came up immediately. Uh, but it did remind me of essays by Henry David Thoreau, who wrote a lot about canoe trips that he took, <laughs> as well as John McPhee, who is one of my favorite living nonfiction writers, and he writes a lot about canoes, uh, canoe mm-hmm. trips. Has a book called "The Survival of the Birch Bark Canoe," I want to say, about a guy who makes old birch bark canoes. And uh, anyway, I wondered who else would be in a an anthology of canoe literature. Can you guys think of anyone else? Any, anyone else who's mm. writing about canoes? Gosh, I mean, in terms of canoes particularly, I don't think so. <laughs> but I mean, I just my mind went to Huckleberry Finn. Um, mm, rafts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a raft, not a canoe, right? Uh, but but yeah, <laughs> my my mind went to. Uh, there's got to be a Jack London story out there. Oh, there has to be about yeah. a canoe. And I also thought of uh, the guy who wrote Hatchet. Oh, oh Gary Paulson. Gary yeah, Paulson. Yeah, yeah. Dude had to have written about a canoe at some point. <laughs> but, uh, but and uh, I wondered I if maybe there was a Hemingway, like maybe a Hemingway mm-hmm. story set in uh, Michigan. Yeah. Where yeah, maybe one of those Nick Adams stories. Yeah, yeah, I'm, Nick I'm, Adams stories. I'm pretty sure there's some canoe action in, in Legends of the Fall uh, mm. or one of those Jim Harrison novellas, I'm sure. But, yeah. Yeah, traveling on rivers seems to be a sort of trope of American American literature, at least. I mean, why do you think that is? Does anyone have any any quick quick theories about why why that is? We can move on if not. <laughs> no, I, I think there's like a, a greater a greater theme of just the open road. Yeah, you know, the travel, out. the mm-hmm. journey, discovering the land because it's such a big land and such a big area. So that that's what repeatedly comes up is the going out in search of America, and I think before we had highways to drive down and Kerouac we had canoes to go down rivers and and how and and how Wendell well and how Wendell Berry like that his his version of that would be to put a canoe uh, six miles upstream upriver from his house (laughs) and then head home (laughs) home. home. yeah Yeah. (laughs) no well and and that is like there's a I won't nerd out too too hard here, but there was a, a literary critic in the the late twentieth century. His name's Le- Leslie Fiedler, who sort of uh, tracked this this trope in, in American literature of men, in particular, going out with other men and sort of setting out from home uh, towards the you know the open road and uh, open territory, right? And that being sort of the the ethos of American literature, and and I think Wendell Berry is definitely a counterpoint to that, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for sure. And yet he's able to sort of take this trope of you know like Huck and Huck and Jim lighting out for the territory, right? Like uh, them w- turn it on its head. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, them walking just far enough away from home to come back to home. come back home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it'd be great. Let's go to your house and let's get in a boat and come back to my house. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I think it's appropriate too that I mean Barry's, you know, writing about 
the Kentucky River specifically in in flood because we're going to see this hmm. a lot. I want I don't shouldn't say a lot. I can't remember if it's a lot, but a number of times at yeah. least oh, in yeah. his yes. poetry and fiction. There's and there's uh, there's moments that happen in the fiction that get referred to in other books of just a, a hmm. large moment, really impactful moments that happen involving the river and the flooding. So. So I'm uh, so I don't don't know Johnson City well. Do you guys live in a place where you experience flooding or at least the the threat of flooding on a semi regular basis? I feel like there were some pretty there was some awful flooding in Tennessee a few years back. But did that affect well, you, you guys? Well, Jason can talk about Nashville. Yeah, yeah, right. he's I, from Nashville. Yeah, so. I grew up in the Nashville area, and there was a pretty pretty bad flood in in 2010 um that i mean even like downtown nashville uh several blocks were kind of the at least the bottoms of the buildings were underwater um so yeah definitely i've experienced that before around here johnson city isn't on a river per se but elizabeth in the town i live in uh does have the watauga river going through it although that's kind of controlled by uh by a dam yeah so yeah yeah uh, we haven't had that much flooding, but we have. Uh, it's the downtown area, but and I, I don't know if this is before you moved here, but the the actual like heart of downtown, and that's John. When me, when you and I met for the first time at the the ale house there, right in that area, it used to flood really, really bad. Um, hmm. but when it would rain hard enough, just because there was no drainage, but then they built a park nearby with a man made. Creek, a man-made yeah. creek that goes through, and then now, whenever it rains, all of the water floods into that man-made creek and takes it out, and it's working amazingly well. So, <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah. I don't know if that's very little barrier, but I mean, they they created a man-made river, <laughs> man-made creek that that kind of avoids the flooding in in a, in a really really nice way. But uh, but no, but yeah, Elizabethan, and then up in the mountains mm-hmm. uh, here on on Run Mountain, we get some. As a teacher, we we've missed school days because buses weren't able to get up past the flooding that's happening mm-hmm. up on the mountains and covering these small roads. Yeah, here in Silverton, Oregon, where I live, there's a, a little river called the Pudding River, and it floods every year, and it's mostly a minor inconvenience. But our town is also built around a creek, um, and the the creek will flood uh, every every several years or so. And I remember back in 2012, the creek was especially high, and there's a nursing home that's built right alongside it, and they actually had to move the residents of the nursing home to the local brewery, and they were there for wow. a lot of days. And I remember seeing one news story where one of the nursing home residents said, we're not complaining. <laughs> yeah. If we're going to be somewhere, it'll be in a brewery. In a brewery. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. If you're going to get exiled somewhere, that's, that's somewhere to get exiled. So there are a couple of places in this essay where he describes the, the people that he sees alongside the river as they're going by. There's a, a fisherman's house. And then he also describes some hunters. And I am not a hunter. This felt pretty harsh to me. He said, let's see if I, I'll read this. Um, he said, these men came come from out of the cities now that hunting season is open. They walk in these foreign places unknown to them for most of the year, looking for something to kill. They wear and carry many dollars worth of equipment and go to a great deal of trouble in order to kill some small creature that they would never trouble to know alive. And that means little to them once they have killed it. And he goes on from there. I'm not a hunter. I'll, I'll admit when I read this, it felt pretty harsh, but I also found it tough to disagree with. I'm curious if you guys are hunters and, and what you made of this of this paragraph. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm I'm not a hunter. Um, 
I've never been hunting myself. Yeah, it seems to be, I mean, there are, there are portions of the fiction in particular where hunting seems to be okay, right? Uh, you know, Burley Coulter and his family and friends are, are always kind of in the, in the woods hunting, right? So, yeah, I, I guess it's that, uh, it seems to be what, what Wendell Berry really has a problem with is that sort of consumer approach to hunting where you go buy all of the, you know, the latest hunting gear that people can sell you. And yeah, you go out in search of things to kill and it's really just just for the sport of it. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do anything with the the animals that you kill. So yeah, I don't know. Tim, are you a hunter? Have you been hunting? I have never been hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Never once in my life. I have a family that are very like dedicated hunters in, in Ohio. They, they love it. And um, I will say that f- for them, it definitely is not a purely sport thing. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're a family who they, they hunt things that they can process and eat and hold on to for long periods of time. And it's definitely a practical choice, along with being something they enjoy doing for the experience of it. But uh, much like people closer to me talk about fishing or something, but which seems to have a, a disconnect between the two. But that's, uh, I was interested to hear about Wendell Berry's thoughts on hunting, similar to the reason, and we'll talk about this, I think, a lot in the future, to hearing Wendell Berry talk about the fact that he was a tobacco farmer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know um, that, that, that's, uh, I mean, it was a different time. To, to hear him process those very common, what do you call them, industries or mm-hmm. traditions. I went hunting, I've been hunting one time. I went in high school with the, my basketball coach who was actually the son of the author of Reviving Ophelia, Mary Pfeiffer. Hmm. Um, and in fact, he, now that I think about it, his name was Zeke Pfeiffer and he's actually written a couple, uh, Christian books, Christian nonfiction books about hunting and fishing. And I, I went out with him once and, uh, there were a couple other guys there too. And I remember praying as we went that we would not kill anything. <laughs> was, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, and, or that when I shot, I would not hit anything cause I was just not prepared to actually deal with the consequences of, of, of taking that, <laughs> taking life. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it, man, to go into it half-hearted is, is maybe sinful or something. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, that, just like the, why did I get into it in the first place if I'm going to go into it halfway or something like that? Yeah. 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 What about you guys? Like, um, what were some, do you have any favorite parts of this essay or, or things we definitely need to, to talk about before we move on to Long-Legged House? I, I really like that, the, the section that you already read about already being like on a journey by the time that you've launched and you've kind of got to adjust yourself. Uh, I don't know. That's just such a, such a fertile metaphor, right? For, for mm-hmm. life in general. Uh, that was, that was definitely one of my favorite, favorite pieces. And actually another, basically my favorite was something you had mentioned already as well, which was the, the point. Sorry guys. <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. All the good parts. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Uh, the, what was difficult becomes easy and what is was easy becomes difficult because I, I, I loved that truth of that. Or you've, if you've been on a boat, you know exactly what he's talking about in every single way, right? Standing becomes difficult. Um, and then he also gets into talking about the speed that you're moving at uh, mm-hmm. relative to what it felt like after you were, you know, when you were outside of the boat or when you're on the, when you're on the shore. Just that way that our body and our mind is able to, to normalize things, which is pretty incredible. And I, and I just couldn't help but then applying that to all the different parts of our life. You know, later in Native Hill, we, we talk about roads and the, 
developing of roads and the speed at which we're moving and all this. And you, you think about applying this to being in a car, right? Or being in an airplane or being in any sort of like vehicle, you have that same kind of weird, yeah, I guess normalizing that happens within you. And that's just kind of a fascinating thing to think about because you can apply it to so many different things. I even applied it to being a skater in high school. Yes. <laughs> <It's skateboards. laughs> but it's a, it's, it's one of those amazing little miracles of being, of being human and being able to adapt to our surroundings and yeah. and also being able to take up more data, right? Like you're in that setting. And when I say taking up data, I mean how he's taking up all the minutia of the place where he is and trying to understand the place where he is. And it's just one of those examples of how our body and our mind are able to work to become more sensitive to certain things. That was fascinating to me. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, I just moved into a new house and a new neighborhood and it's always different to you know you've driven through the neighborhood but uh once you're there you actually go for a walk and you just notice so many more things uh because you're traveling in a different way and much more slowly in a way that's conducive to observing so and the very domestic version even more domestic version of that is where you you have people like jason his wife came over for dinner tonight and i'm like this place is a disaster they're going to come here and like call social services on us it's so dirty because <laughs> we're like our kids are making you know, throwing toys all over the place and then you realize like you can kind of step back and just know that when you whatever you're around becomes very normal but when you see it from the outside it becomes it's, it's a much, di- much different deal sure um i have i have a couple other quotes that i highlighted that i I, I love the part where he said it was the where the, where the water is is coming up and the the currents taking them. He says it was the first time I realized that there could be circumstances in my life or in which my life could count for nothing, absolutely mm. nothing, and I have never needed to learn that again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, uh, just that feeling of I almost died and I realized how little I was. Like where he, where he talks about like the water, that his impact on the surface of the water is just like a blip. Yeah. <laughs> in this entire river, like unrecognizable blip in, in the body of this river and how all, all these streams and currents are going in opposition to one another and tie in these pools down underneath. And yeah. uh, just a reminder of the smallness of a person versus the amazing intricacy of nature, of one part of nature. Even. So Yeah, that, just his reverence for the river is, is, is beautiful. It reminded me of like the beginning of T.S. Eliot's it's the third of the four quartets, the dry salvages. Uh, I, I think the first line is just the river is a strong brown God. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. just that kind yeah. of reverence before, uh, yeah, great. this force that you don't have control over. And that's a perfect, uh, so a pair with that, this quote from the essay where he says, there's an exhilaration in being accustomed to a boat on dangerous water. It is as though into one's consciousness of the dark violence of the depths at one's feet there rises the idea of the boat, the buoyancy of it. It is always with a sort of triumph that the boat is realized <laughs> that it goes on top of the water between breathing and drowning. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where, where when you're on a boat and you're like you're a subject of the river, you, you are relying on the river for your survival, that you're somewhere between breathing and drowning. <laughs> it's pretty pretty amazing also amazing that you regularize yourself to that too right this like same with being in an airplane mm-hmm. don't think about it too much while you're flying or it's, it's, right. it's a pretty wild experience but. any others tim or jason i don't think so don't so me. yeah there's a there's a there's a little bit of a sadness in this essay that comes back up in a native hill where he talks about this is towards the end and also empty cans and bottles and all sorts of buoyant trash left behind by fishermen and hunters as pick and picnickers 
or dumped over creek banks by householders with who uh, withholders who sometimes drive miles to do it, right? Yeah. That, and then it comes back up in a native hill of these paths he travels and these 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 paths that seem like friends of his, or they seem like parts of his anatomy, right? Where he's going and oh. Well, not surprising. I mean, there's some beer bottles. And just that, that that's a thread that kind of goes through this whole thing of knowing your place, but also knowing that not everybody in your place knows it like you do, or not everybody in your place appreciates it like you do. And not that you're perfect, but that he sees that and it helps him realize even more. It's like that's another piece of data he's taking in, seeing this the way other people treat it. Uh, it doesn't make him judge. He never judges them or, like, throws shame at them, really. It just makes him burrow in even more of, like, I need to know this place. I need to take care of this place. So Yeah, that connects to an essay that comes earlier in, in the book called The Nature Consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are It's about, he calls them boatmen, which I've, it was a term that I never heard before. Uh, yeah, so it, these, these, these guys who come in on motorboats and just trash the river during the day and play their radios at night. And he talks about, at the end of that essay, about folks who drive for miles, they come in from the city looking for freedom, uh, only to find that they don't have it. Like, they don't, because they're not, they're Mm -hmm. not free enough to be silent, to be still, to be fully present on the river. And so it ends up being kind of a a mirror back to them. I mean, a mirror that they're not looking in, Mm -hmm. a mirror that they're not aware of, but it just reveals that they are are not free um in, in the end yeah but another very sad essay i wondered where like this whole book like when it came out in relationship to to silent spring i was thinking about that book being about streams and rivers and and um, hmm. all the pollutants and and chemicals that were killing birds killing plants uh, there's a similar have you guys ever why well, i think you've read david james duncan uh, mm-hmm. have you read uh, brothers k or uh, and then he had, no, I've only read The River Why. Okay, he has a, and I'm, I won't get into a lot of detail, but it just it takes me back to his book of short stories. It's called River Teeth, hmm. um, which is a it's a really beautiful book of of short stories. And there's like a novella in there too, but talking about treatment of the river and the people of the river and things like that. So yeah, I won't dig into it, but it's just kind of yeah, just I can't help but make connections when possible. Yeah, yeah there's a great tradition of of, uh, of nature writers and people who are writing about and, and uh, urging care for the rivers um but i'm thinking we should move on yeah. uh, we have a lot to cover um uh, and we kind of launched into this essay i was launched into this podcast sort of uh recognizing the possibility that we might have to split it up into into two episodes depending on on how long we go but let's move on and sure. uh to the long-legged house and so jason would you give a synopsis of the long-legged house yeah definitely um so this is a very long essay, uh, uh, and it is uh, the essay for which the the collection is named. And it, it's essentially a memoir. I guess I call it a memoir essay about how Wendell Berry grew up in and decided ultimately to return to Henry County, Kentucky. Um, and it's told through his relationship to a camp house or a cabin right on the river uh, that his great uncle 
uh, built and um, that he came to love as he was growing up. It was sort of a refuge for him um, in his childhood and his in his adolescence. Um, it's also the place where he and his wife Tanya first moved into right after they got married. And then after that, it was a place that he returned to as sort of a writer's retreat when he was uh, when he was teaching at the University of Kentucky. And then at the end of this essay, we get the story of how they they returned to to settle there permanently um, near the near the camp house or the long legged house. It sounds a sounds a lot like Ernest and Jaber and Burley's yeah. retreat on the river. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It does. So. Just to sort of jump in, what do you guys, I I guess I'd like to start by maybe considering the overall structure of this really, really long essay. So I called this a memoir essay, but he's actually mixing in a lot of different nonfiction elements and genres into this essay. You have a coming of age story. We get to see Wendell Berry as an awkward teenager, rebellious <laughs> teenager, which is which is awesome. Uh, but then you have sections of like argument on ecological ethics, and you have a prolonged section in the middle of uh, literary criticism of a poem from the 17th century, <laughs> and then you have nature descriptions, really sort of thick descriptions of nature um, that I guess you could categorizes nature writing so he's blending all of these genres what what do you guys make of this like what is how successful is he in creating a coherent sort of whole out of all these different elements and and what do you think he's up to in doing that i think it reflects the place he's writing from and i keep i keep referring to native hill but the fact that he's back there and he's in a place that's not new york city and he's in this slow area and i think that that does a lot to it's a huge part of the way he writes. And so this is definitely a piece that feels like he was sitting down with a sort of vague view in front of his mind and just kind of followed his followed his nose. Another phrase mm-hmm. that I've used already, right, where he's just following his nose through this thing. Um, but, yeah, I just feel like he's he's following his nose through a, through a narrative and he's getting there however he needs to and he's not worrying about letting it look like anything else, you know, bringing in these poems and, and having these moments of memoir. But also he's Wendell Berry, so he's not going to let a moment go by where he can't preach it a little bit on, yeah. <laughs> on some of these ecological issues. So um, it feels very normal. But I guess if you step back and you have kind of an objective objective view, sure, it might seem a little odd, but, but I, th- I think it's, it's very him. I think that it works wonderfully, bringing all of those different elements together. In the yet-to-be-recorded episode zero of this podcast, <laughs> we... Are you going to put some described, spoilers? <laughs> yeah, I assume that we dis- <laughs> uh, I assume that we described our Wendellberry origin stories. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, this feels to me like Wendellberry's own origin story. Yeah, um, and I think what makes it work that he's bringing all of these elements into one piece, one essay, is that he's bringing it all back to one particular place, like the. Jason, you mentioned the ecological ethics like that's rooted in the ecological ethic of this one particular spot on the Kentucky River. Like the the literary criticism uh, that he brings in, like it feels more like a like, as you said, a coming of age story because he's talking about Andrew Marvel and William Carlos Williams, Thoreau, the Chinese poets. Like he's bringing them up here because it's at the camp that he that he came of age as a reader and writer. Mm-hmm. And like he he does extrapolate about nature and sort of pull out some general principles. And sometimes he's 
curmudgeonly and scolding. He was in his 30s, maybe, or yeah. late 20s or early 30s. I was going to say at the time, he, was, he wasn't that, kind of that old. <laughs> <laughs> but he's already scolding. But I think it works because at the same time, he's also doing this close read of, of nature that is within view of his window hmm. uh, or within view of his, his binoculars. So I, I think it works because, at least in this instance, because he's bringing it all back to this one particular place. Hmm. Or he's starting from this one. I, I'm saying he brings, he's bringing it back. Because he's starting from this one particular place. And you know that he's probably writing it from this one particular place. And, and that somehow makes it work, too. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's something that, I don't know, something sort of defiant in his determination to not be a specialist, right? So, of course, he's going to describe nature. Of course, he's going to talk about ecological crises and, and our relation to them. And, of course, he's going to talk about poetry because that's just who he is. And we should be able to talk about all of these things together because they're related. Right? <laughs> yeah, we don't have to separate them. And, <laughs> yeah. and there's even it has a t- certain tone to it where it just feels like a journal. Yeah. Right? Where yeah. it reminds me of if you read uh, Thoreau's journals, it has mm. a similar feel. Or, or Thomas Merton's journals, these, yeah. like, he checks in, talks about the weather, what does he see, and then kind of digs in deep. And yeah. I think there's there's one part where he, he says, it's it's been almost exactly a year since I began this history. My work was interrupted by the spring weather when gardening and other outside concerns took me away from writing. But now it is deep winter again. Yesterday, snow fell all day and covered the ground. This morning, though the sun came up clear, the thermometer read four above. A good morning to sit in the camp in the warmth of the stove and the brisk snow light and the big window over the table. It is a morning for books and notebooks and the inviting blank pages of writing paper. I love yeah. that passage. I feel like that's something that every writer should just print out and have hanging on the wall or something. Right? Yeah. You find those moments. It's all about finding those moments. But yeah, which I love that sort of journal writing feel that he's got. Yeah. When well, he mentioned Thoreau and like mm-hmm. Thoreau's all over this and yes, like his yeah. influences, definitely. This is Wendell Berry at his most Thoreauvian, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's his Walden. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's talking about a cabin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For himself <laughs> where he's, yeah, yeah. Next to a body of water. Yeah, then, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So uh, I mentioned the we've been talking about this coming of age story. So I, I had actually never read this essay before. John, I know you had. Tim, I think you hadn't, right? Uh, I, I had not. So, like, I, I loved getting more biographical information about Wendell Berry than, than I had had about sort of his, his past. You know, he, he sort of describes himself as a rebellious and sort of sensitive teenager who escaped to with, with a friend to uh, the camp house. And then he had to go to military school, which sounds like the worst place in the world for Wendell Berry. <laughs> yeah. and he describes yeah. it as pretty much that. Yeah, uh, it's like the phantom zone. For yeah. Him. So, I mean, I guess... Yes, like having this sort of backstory from this, like how does this sort of affect your perception of, of his other work? You're right that I had read this before, but somehow I had forgotten that he went to a military high school. Yeah. And so I was really surprised by that for probably the second time. <laughs> yeah, sure. 
<laughs> because it just does, probably didn't seem real after the first yeah. time. <laughs> Usually your brain just automatically <laughs> files it away as like fake news. <laughs> right, like, right. No way. He didn't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, one of the first connections I made when hearing or, or hearing about that part of his life and even just thinking about the existence of this piece was look and see, which we can basically treat that documentary as one of the bookends for his career so far with this book on the other side. And I can't imagine that Wendelberry now might have let himself write what he's writing way back then, you know, hmm. just as personal as it is. And as mem- we, we keep using the word memoir, and that's not hmm. something that he does a lot of. And in this documentary that's made, he didn't really want to talk about himself. You know, right, his wife right. and his daughter talked about him, but he just wanted to talk about the issues that he cared about and the things that he cared about. And so I, that was a, that was a thought that crossed my mind. Is I wonder if this would have existed if he was if he said if somebody said, "Hey, you should write something like this <laughs> uh, today," a piece that gives your sort of origins and where you come from and in your place. I think it would it might exist. He might write it, but it would look a lot different. We'll talk about this in episode two or three. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is. Because we've already recorded it. But it reminds me of so in his in the Art of Loading Brush, his newest collection, he writes about some of the the writers and friendships that have been most important to him. But he does it from the as if he is Andy Catlett. Mm-hmm. And so even in, in that personal even in uh, on such a person personal theme for who knows what reasons he decides to do it as sort of his fictional alter ego. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that's a good, you brought up a good point to him of sort of contrasting this with the documentary. Uh, it's not something I thought about before. Yeah. And I would have, and I, I haven't read his most recent collection. So that was just the most recent thing I had kind of to work with, but I just, yeah, yeah. it's a something that, and maybe that makes it even more of a, we've used the term coming of age as well. Right is that I guess every person has that period in their, and every writer has that period in their career, at least has it for one period of time, that they have to tell that story, right? Where they have to work themselves through that story. And today he's mm-hmm. much older, and he probably doesn't feel like he has to work himself through that story. But at the time he's writing this, he's around our age, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's he's in our, our age range. And around he, your age. Oh, our age range. <laughs> he's in there. Uh, but he's, he's feeling that need, kind of like we might have, right? Mm-hmm. Or we might feel the need to make sense of our place and make sense of Mm -hmm. why we are where we are and why we didn't leave Mm -hmm. (laughs) or why we came back. Yeah. Well, it's it's always, for me, it was, uh, it was heartening to read that, that passage of him reflecting on, I think it was himself as maybe a, a teenager, just enjoying himself being lazy at the cabin and then realizing he was just being lazy and then not being able to enjoy himself anymore, <laughs> even though he wanted to. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. you just picture yeah. him as like this sort of Zen guy who can yeah. go for walks in the woods and just yeah. just be right. But, you know, and, and uh, you read his poetry and it's beautiful and you're like, but how do you do that? And. <laughs> And yet, you know, he's admitting that this was not always something that was easy for him. You also, you get this image in your head of all this happening in his head and him just having this moment where he's sitting on the porch. He's just like, ah, crap. (laughs) 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 I can't can't do this anymore. Right, right. Now I got to get up and do stuff. Here I go. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't he say it's basically twice his age from that point? It it takes that long for him to really be able to enjoy it again? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, from... 
14 or 15 or 16 years old to 28, 29, 30 mm-hmm. before he's able to, to really be <laughs> present and enjoy it that way again. Yeah. yeah. You can believe it. Yeah, definitely believe it. Well, I just, I'll say that as a writer and as a reader and as a person, I really love this stuff. I like that we at least have something where he is talking in depth about his early years and about his journey to becoming a writer and his journey back home. There's a particular form of literary criticism, and I can't remember what it's called, that, I, and you guys might know as as, teach, as lit professors or lit teachers, where like you, you want the reader to disregard a writer's biography. Mm-hmm. What's that called? What's, what kind of literary criticism? I mean, I guess the broad term is probably formalism, where your sort of authorial intent is sort of irrelevant and you're just focused on the text. Okay. I'm not very interested in that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Because I'm a writer and a reader and a person, I'm I'm interested and I find it really valuable to consider how and where Barry is writing this and how he got there. It's also a reminder of I'm so inconsistent in living with like I do not live consistent with my beliefs a lot of the time and but I'm in process and reading more about Wendell Berry's process, the process of someone I really admire a lot, reminds me to be more gracious with myself. I also like, while well, I was surprised that he went to military school, I like that he found ways of, of, of bucking authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a Christian college for about five minutes and I did the same thing in my own way. It just it did not uh, did not take. Uh, so anyway, that was encouraging, too. Mm-hmm. I, I like it. I find it valuable. Yeah, you didn't you didn't have to follow any sort of predictable course or, or a course that makes sense for him. In some ways, the as a, as a man of contrasts and a man that knows the world's a complicated place, it made in in a weird way it made perfect sense for him to go to. I was like, oh, well, of course he went to military school, and that that like contrast is what made him who he is. Not in a like aggressive kind of retaliatory way necessarily, but just that that's part of who he is, and that he seems exactly like the kind of person, or, or at least getting to know him through his writing, that he would be very comfortable with it. And it wouldn't be something that he'd dwell on. It's something that he learns from and moves on. So in this sort of description of, yeah, talking about military school sort of leads into another piece of the essay that that I wanted to, to discuss. Sort of later on in his life, he describes sort of coming back after, I guess, having been to college and sort of coming back to the camp as a, as a refuge. He has a lot to say about education, and I guess he's talking about official education. And I'm sort of wondering what you guys thought about that. So I'll read, this is on page 144 in the, in the essay collection I have. Um, as I think of it now, school itself was a distraction. Although I have become, among other things, a teacher, I am skeptical of education. It seems to be a most doubtful process, and I think the good of it is taken too much for granted. It is a matter that is over-theorized and overvalued and always approached with too much confidence. (laughs) It is, as we skeptics are always discovering to our delight, no substitute for experience or life or virtue or devotion. As it is handed out by the schools, it is only theoretically useful, like a randomly mixed handful of seeds carried in one's pocket. When one carries them back to one's own place in the world and plants them, some will prove unfit for the climate or the ground. Some are sterile, some are not seeds at all, but little clods and bits of gravel. Surprisingly, few of them 
come to anything. There is an incredible waste and clumsiness in most efforts to prepare the young. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Institutional education doesn't seem to be a thing he's a fan of, maybe understandably, given his his stint in military school. But, uh, Tim, I was was especially interested to hear what you, as someone who teaches Mm full-time in an institutional (laughs) setting, uh, what, what what do you make of that? Well, I, I, I pretty much 100% agree with it, and that I, I, find I also have the, the fortune of being in the setting of a school that has been given an opportunity to do something about that kind of hmm. notion, because when I started teaching high school, I teach at a school in a pretty conservative area, but in, in a high school that was pretty comfortable, and, and then the community was comfortable in the school being like what schools have been for the last 50 years, right? That's like, there was a model to it. And there were certain books you read, and there's a certain way you went about things. Uh, and now, through some some grants we've gotten and some opportunities we have, we're, we're trying to reinvent things. And in my research and in my prep, it, I came across this quote, which I'm going to read, which is what this passage of Long Island House makes me think of immediately. And this is from ta Coates from Between the World and Me. And this is about his own education. And he says, I wanted to pursue things, to know things. But I could not match the means of knowing that came naturally to me with the expectations of professors. The pursuit of knowing was freedom to me, the right to declare your own curiosities and follow them in all manner of books. I was made for the library, not the classroom. The classroom was a jail of other people's interests. Hmm. Um, so that was that's that's a quote that I've been I had been I've been using for the last couple of weeks to kind of guide me in what I'm doing and trying to change in my classroom as far as giving students the room and agency to buck that kind of a system right and get to read the things that are going to push them that also grab their interest or that also spark their natural curiosities because it's like the what I feel like he's saying and the way he's in, d- describing school is that school prepares you for what you need. 10 years ago, (laughs) like that school prepares you to be what people thought you would need to be 10 years ago when they designed the curriculum that you're doing now. Whereas what education really has to be that maybe he would have enjoyed more is an education that uh, prepares you with these skills that make you ready for the jobs that don't even exist yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, I hear what he's saying, like preach, (laughs) preach. What is it? John, this, this brother speaks my heart. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's right. I, to, yeah. I totally this agree. Friend, this friend, this friend speaks my heart. I, I, I totally agree because I feel like it's what he's saying is, is speaking to what I, I kind of have grown over the last seven years to want to push back against, even in moments where I was definitely the cause of that. <laughs> I, I've, I've been on both sides. So Sure. John, how did that strike you? Well, it reminded me of a short story that we haven't read yet. We're going to be introduced to a character named Ptolemy Proudfoot, and he marries a school teacher named Miss Minnie. And in one of the short stories in the book Watch With Me, Wendell Berry describes Miss Minnie's philosophy of education. Uh, he says that she went away to a teacher's college to learn how to teach and then never used any of those methods. Uh, instead, <laughs> it says, <laughs> Barry says that she uh, loved children and she loved books. And she taught merely by introducing the one to the other. <laughs> uh, maybe that's more reminiscent of, of the quote you just read from Ta-Nehisi Coates mm-hmm. um, versus the, the essay itself. But, uh, yeah, you know, and 
Uh, there is a book that came out recently called Wendell Berry in Higher Education by Jack to, uh, Jack Baker, who I'm not familiar with, and Jeffrey Bilbro. And I believe that Jeffrey Bilbro is now the editor of Front Porch Republic. But the book is called Wendell Berry in Higher Education, uh, Cultivating Virtues of Place. And I pulled it up on Amazon just now because I didn't think of it as I was reading the essay. And I see that Wendell Berry wrote the foreword. So uh, while he's kind of down on education as it's traditionally done, he obviously saw some possibilities for education. Enough to write the foreword to this book. And I also am reminded that he actually dedicated this essay collection to his students. Yeah. Uh, so maybe he must have. And I, it's easy to assume that he tried to teach a, a very different way. Right, right. Well, there's a there's a section later in the essay that I think maybe sort of clarifies how he views education and learning. This is on page 188 in, in my edition. The most important learning, that of experience, can be neither summoned nor sought out. The most worthy knowledge cannot be acquired by what is known as study, though that is necessary and it has its use it comes in its own good time and in its own way to the man who will go where it lives and wait and be ready and watch. So, I mean, I think of my teaching, and like you said, Tim, uh, feel like I've been on both sides of the <laughs> that 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 sort of divide. But yeah, like you, you have to teach certain uh, certain basics that people need to have, but at the same time, what you're also hoping to uh, to encourage is sort of a, a disposition toward life, right? Yeah. Where you're paying attention and, cur- yeah. yeah, you have curiosity so that when you're in a new situation, you can watch and pay attention and Ask learn. questions. Yeah. yeah. Before, we, before we move on, Jason, I just, I want to pause if we can with, with that section you just read. Sure. I, I think that paragraph and the paragraph after it are probably my two favorite paragraphs in this whole essay. Yeah. Where he's he's talking about a, a way of, of learning that is humble. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of like he describes this unhurried study of a place and the importance of being attentive and being present. And I just thought that was brilliant and lovely. And it made me want to undertake the same kind of sustained study in my own backyard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I wrote sort of in the margins, like, so he's, he's talking about being watchful, about really seeing um, and experiencing what's around you, right? And like all these little vignettes of talking about the birds and the groundhogs and the maybe maybe not groundhogs, uh, squirrels and, and other creatures <laughs> around him where he it's just this really like rich sort of thick description of wildlife and and all this stuff. Uh, I'm just picturing like groundhogs popping up next to him in the in the ground. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like some sort of right. Francis, you know. St. Yes, Francis. Exactly. Like, yeah. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Yeah. But he's sort of modeling that sort of watchfulness um, in his in his own place. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I think I'll jump maybe to what I think is if I had to pick a sort of thesis statement for this essay, um, I think it would be on page one eighty. 
um, sort of toward the bottom. He writes, It is only in a country that is well-known, full of familiar names and places, full of life that is always changing, that the mind goes free of abstractions and renews itself in the presence of the creation that so persistently eludes human comprehension and human law. It is only in the place that one belongs to, intimate and familiar, long watched over, that the details rise up out of the hole and become visible. The hawk stoops into the clearing before one's eye. The wood drake, aloof and serene in his glorious plumage, swims out of his hiding place. So, I mean, this essay is about Wendell Berry returning to his own place that is sort of the subject of his writing and learning how to be... I guess the writer that that place needs or that that place deserves. And it seems like what he's saying is that you have to be deeply familiar with a place before you can sort of have that immediate experience of creation that's sort of void of abstractions and is truly particular. And I got to be honest, like that's not an experience I have of my suburban backyard, right? Uh, I mean, I haven't lived in... The, uh, part of the problem is I've moved around a lot. Just moved into the house I'm living in a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. Have, have you guys experienced something like that of being able to be in a place and and for it to be so familiar that, that you're, you sort of move into that different kind of relation to it? Well, I, can't, I can't remember exactly, but I think in the future... <laughs> I might quote the same thing I'm about to say, but uh, uh, but that makes me because no, no, my short answer is not really or not exactly because it kind of similar. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and then I came here, and I've had you know moments, but but um, and I've moved you know, moved around different houses, and I'm not living in the country, but uh, that I think those moments find themselves wherever you are, as long as it's where you make your your home, and then the quote I'm thinking of is of Tanya in the in the documentary where she's she she's quoting. I'm gonna forget is it Gary Snyder? She's quoting. So like if you, if you want to find a home, then just stop, <laughs> right? <laughs> like when where you stop, that that's where you can make a home wherever you are. It's not it's it's not like there's one. It's almost and she. I'm, this is not what she said, but she said you can just stop. You can make a home, but subtext being that it's not a sort of soulmate situation. <laughs> it's a right. it's a you. Wherever you are, as long as you're in the right mindset and you're paying attention, your eyes are open. Um, you can find it. And honestly, like, it's a great question, and I, I need to think about it a little more of, of those kinds of moments. For me, I, I don't know if I I have those moments. Well, okay, here's the closest I think I've gotten. I grew up in a place outside of Chicago that was it was flat, it was concrete. <laughs> you know, it's it's the anti a native hill, right? Where we've like destroyed the land, we've created this thing, we created this grid, we've got this place, and then I I moved to Tennessee, and just in the fact of moving to Tennessee, moved into a place that's different. It's greener. Your roads move with the hills, right? And you're you're not in spite of them. You're not plowing through the middle of them. You're you're moving with them, and that I still to this day have what it might be as close as possible to this moment of just the first time coming over that hill and into what has become my new home and seeing the mountains, right? And just seeing kind of like the the grandeur of something that is untouched. Like still, I, in certain ways, it kind of chokes me up when I see it coming back home 
uh, from places that are unlike this and, and not to disparage the other places, but just that this place feels like home, especially in those moments where those details become like, or, there, or those details are right at the front of my mind. Yeah, I can, I think that I get discouraged sometimes because I want to be five or six generations down from, from where we are now. <laughs> I feel like, you know, Wendell Berry in, in all three of these essays is talking about, and it's in particular, the long-legged house in a native hill is describing a family that has been, I mean, he, he talks about his grandfather's great grandfather, something like that, you know, <laughs> like they have been a part of this place for many, many years. Hmm this one particular place. And I, like you, Jason, like I've moved a ton. Uh, we moved a lot from my dad's work when I was growing up. I still have a wanderlust. Every two years, I want to pull up stakes and move on. And my wife and I just got to the point about um, 10 years ago or so where we just said, and in part because we were reading a lot of Wendell Berry and other writers like him, we need to stop. We need to pick a place and stay there. Uh, and we started using the language of covenant. We wanted to covenant ourselves with the place so we could be there forever. We could commit to it for better or for worse. <laughs> and what has happened since we moved to Silverton, we picked Silverton. And it feels a little bit like Silverton picked us. Uh, but what's happened over those years is because we have committed to this place, we feel like the community here has has opened itself up to us. It's been vulnerable with us in a way that we have appreciated, but we've also seen it, it be very uh, skeptical and distrustful of other folks who have moved in. And uh, so that's been a pretty extraordinary thing. So I feel like we've had some success and some uh, glimpses of what Wendell Berry's talking about in terms of the people. But I think we're at the very beginning of our journey in terms of our natural, I don't want to say surroundings because Wendell Berry talks about living within a place rather than on it. So like the nature, the, the, the nature that we're living within, like that's, we're just starting that, that part of the journey. Yeah. And what I look forward to, I want to try to model a way of staying put that Mike will fascinate and uh, that my kids will, will fall in love with so that maybe we're starting the process where five or six generations from now, there are descendants of mine that are still staying put in this place. And uh, know it in a much deeper level than than I will ever be able to. Yeah, but I I'm right on board with you in what you're saying. Uh, I think we you know you, you learn about how history repeats itself and that the world works kind of in cycles in a lot of ways. And we have all all three of us have grown up in a, a world that was global, right? A world that's big, a world that's right in front of your face, a world that you hear about everything all the time. Uh, and also a world that's mostly more and more urban, right? Becomes more urban. The urban sprawl continues to happen. And that we have gotten to a point like in these recent, I don't know, in this decade or something, where it seems like not a huge amount, but there are just a pretty healthy number of people who are planting in a way that was different than 10 years ago. And that I feel like, talk about a word's connotation or how like a definition of a word changes, is that I feel like what we're living in right now is a wilderness, like a wilderness in a different way than what Wendell Berry's great-great-grandfather would have called, right? But it's a, we're living in a wilderness, in a place that's big, in a place that's overwhelming, in a place that you can't see too far in front of you, you know? And I think that that, it's almost like our generation, if we choose to, in certain parts of our generation, that we have an opportunity, or maybe a 
maybe even an obligation to be settlers for the future. Mm-hmm. Right? That we're like settlers in our own wilderness that we've been dealt in our childhood. Maybe it's not the same one as 75 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. But who cares? It's still a wilderness and it's still a, a place that's, it's, it, uh, this is going to be a very Wendell Berry thing to say, but it's, it's so charted that it's uncharted. Right, that it's so planned out and it's so extensive and it's so detailed that you get lost in it. And so that now we're kind of at a point where we have to settle and we have to say, here's a good place. This place is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is my place. And Here and no further. <laughs> here and no further. Yeah. <laughs> and we need to stop. Like the Gary yeah. Snyder and Tanya Berry, yeah. like it's to stop and make a home and then and then just like you're saying John hope that then from here on out that our our family if they if we made a good choice and if we chose a place that's right and we've helped them love in the same way like with Wendell Berry and his kids helping them look and see and notice things and appreciate a place that that it can kind of change the the way they deal with their own wilderness that they're born into now like our kids beautifully said definitely Thanks again, friends, for listening to episode 2A of The Membership. Tim, John, and I will finish our conversation on The Long-Legged House next week with episode 2B. If you like what you heard, please take a few minutes to rate and review us on iTunes. This helps others find our podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle MembershipPod, or find us online at MembershipPod.com. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com podcasts. The excerpts read in this episode can be found in The Long-Legged House, which was written by Wendell Berry and is published by Counterpoint Press. 